Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hello, it's Catherine here. Welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. Today, we are going to talk about a topic within medical social work that all medical social workers are familiar with, but not all of us got training in this particular topic during grad school or maybe really ever, even in work sometimes. So today, we're going to talk about end-of-life planning what it is, what that looks like, and why it's important that you know about it if you are a medical social worker, if you're doing an internship, or if you are thinking about medical social work, this is going to be a really, really great episode for you. So I'm going to first start off with a story. I've been social working since, well, 2009, And since 2015, I've specifically been in medical social work, and I love it. The the story always comes to mind when I think about the importance of advanced care planning or end-of-life planning and basically making your wishes known before, well, before you're gone, right? Before you're, you're very, very sick and you can't tell anybody what your wishes are. So having these conversations early is so important for everybody. I was working in hospice and we had this case where this woman suddenly had a a significant stroke, right? And it can be anything. It could be a stroke, heart attack that leaves you essentially in a coma. So she had went to the hospital and they did everything for her. They put her on the machines. The machines were breathing for her. They had the conversation with the family. Okay, you know, your mom is unfortunately not getting better and the machines are just prolonging the end of her life. What would you like to do? And they decided to bring her home uh, to her house where she could pass peacefully with hospice services. And I was part of this hospice team and it was known as a, um, what's it called? Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name. As a compassionate extubation. So basically where they understand or they expect her that she's going to pass very soon after she is extubated, 
and or after the tube comes out of her, after the doctor takes out the tube and the machine's no longer breathing for her, they expected her to pass away relatively soon, you know, within a couple of minutes or a couple hours, right, is generally what they say. And just a little disclosure here, not all hospices do this. So this was special in that they actually transported her from the hospital to her home with all of this machines. A lot of times people will not do this. So there's a kind of a caveat there. Each hospice is going to be different, etc. So this is the situation that we had. And as a social worker, I was called to go and be there for support with the family. Well, what ended up happening was that she, she didn't actually pass away. She stayed there. She ended up breathing very shallowly on her own, but she ended up being there at her home for months, months. So now this situation of these adult children, they thought that this was going to be a very quick event and say goodbye to their mother. It turned into a long-term caregiver situation. And then one sibling wanted to pursue rehabilitation and therapy. And the other sibling was on the other side of the spectrum to where they did not want to even really like, uh, what's the word? They definitely were not about the therapy life. They wanted her to be comfortable and they didn't want her to be, they felt like she was kind of stuck in limbo, that she didn't want to live in in a state, well, people call it a vegetative state or like a vegetable, um, but they didn't want to, she didn't want to live in a state where she wasn't awake, she couldn't do anything, she couldn't interact, she couldn't move anything, she couldn't give you any indication of communication, so... We have these two siblings on the opposite ends of the spectrum. One wants to pursue treatment and therapy, and the other one, I mean, eventually just wants to taper off the food and the nourishment that she's getting. So this is our problem here. You know, which sibling has the right to say, what what would the patient want? We have no proof of what the patient would want. There's no spouse involved. So all of the siblings have equal power and there's nothing in writing that says what the family should do in this type of situation or what the medical team should do in this type of situation. So it was an extremely difficult, difficult situation for the family to be in and hard for us as the medical team because we want to honor what our patient wants Do they, you know, what do they want? We don't know. So that is why in the medical field, they will have the social worker, sometimes they'll have the social worker come in, have these end of life conversations, you know, in case your disease were to progress, what do you want? What should we do? What should we not do? So that is why, I mean, that's that experience just stuck with me. It's, it's forever going to be on my heart uh, about the importance of why we should have an advanced directive and why it's important that we're able to communicate with our patients and families effectively about what this is, 
what it does, why they need it, and to answer all the valid questions that they have. So this is not meant to be medical advice. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> this is meant, this is not meant to replace clinical supervision, the policies of your state, or the policies of your specific agency. Each of those is going to be different. Each state is going to be different. Even the terminology that they use is going to be different. This podcast is based off of my experience and research as a medical social worker for the past seven years. So that is my disclosure, putting it out there for you. Uh, a lot of times people wonder, you know, what types of settings would a social worker be called on to have these kinds of conversations? Well, for sure, in the hospital, definitely if you are working in hospice, but you also may have these conversations if, if you're working at a dialysis center, if you're working with home health, maybe you're at an outpatient medical doctor's office. Skilled nursing facilities often have these conversations. If you're working with an oncology center, any kind of transplant centers or a time where there is going to be a surgery, a lot of times people will, will create these documents. And I've, I've even seen to where uh, military will create these documents in case something were to happen during their service. So there's a lot of different settings that these conversations are happening in that we, we should know about. And unless you have taken a specific medical social work class, or for instance, I took a class on death and dying in my master's program, but even then, it's going to be a small snippet of what you're learning, right? And this conversation is so important to have and it takes time. Also, too, there it, it's uncomfortable, right? We're not used to having these conversations in our daily life. Our society is not typically talking about end of life or what would happen if you went into a coma or, you know, some an accident happens. Like we we typically don't think about that. We don't plan on getting sick. A lot of times people just say, oh, you know, just I just want to go peacefully at night. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, we're very, very sick for a long time. So it's important to have these conversations, but it's not fun to have, right? So if you're working in these settings, they will likely have you talk about this end of life planning. They'll have you come in. I mean, any, like all sorts of different types of situations when there's a change in their medical condition. A lot of times, you know, of course, when they have a surgery, anything could happen. They want to know, should we resuscitate you? Should we not? What, what should we do in case something goes wrong in the surgery? Um, they'll have this conversation if a person has a chronic illness that puts them in frail health and the doctor determines like, okay, you know, it, it could be a higher possibility that you get very sick, you have to go to the hospital, something happens. So when you have frail health, we are definitely having this conversation. Um, but honestly, anyone over the age of 18 can have these documents in place. 
I know I have mine. I've seen too many cases in hospice where people just didn't have it. I'm like, oh no, I wouldn't want to put my family through that, through having to make those those difficult decisions and having to guess what I would want. So I just wanted to make that really clear and put it in writing so that there's you know limited questions, there's limited confusion. And granted, it's not going to cure all of the confusion, but it will definitely, definitely help getting you on your way. So a lot of times we tend to avoid these conversations for some of the reasons that that I just mentioned, because it's awkward. We just don't really want to think about getting sick. I mean, it's it's a paper that's putting mortality in our face. So we tend to avoid it. It's sad to think about. I mean, it's it, when my mom said, oh, you know, we're making our funeral arrangements, I, I panicked for a second. I was like, ah, oh my gosh, why? <laughs> but then, uh, you know, I, I realized, I was like, okay, this is a good thing that she's doing this and that she's telling me. But I really was, even with all the training and experience, I was taken aback, like, oh my gosh, is there something going on? So I got worried, but no worries. She's just doing her, her due diligence and planning. Um, but it's, you know, it's sad to think about. And the other thing, too, is people worry, you know, what if I want to change what my decision? What if today I feel one way and then sometime in the future I, I feel a different way? So they're worried that this is going to be a permanent solution, which it's not. You can always update it. Um, you know, we don't plan to be sick and it's awkward to think about. And also, too, I've seen culturally that some people feel what happens to them when they're sick or after they die, it's just not their problem. That it's the problem for their children to handle and their children to come together on and agree on. And, and they'll say things like, I just, I just don't care what happens to me. I don't want to be a burden. So I will just let my children figure it out. Which then puts the children in an awkward situation and you can end up with a situation like a story like I said at the beginning. So. There's a lot of different reasons why we don't talk about it, and and there's a lot of reasons why they're going to call the social worker to have these conversations. First and foremost, one, they're awkward. They're awkward for everybody, okay? Uh, two, they take time. These types of conversations take a lot of time because we are sifting through major life decisions, major priorities your values, your religious beliefs, maybe your spirituality, a lot of feelings of the patient and the family. So there is a lot of different things to sift through. There's a lot of questions, a lot of fear around the unknown. Um, And also too, they may be scared to face the truth that now is a time that they need to have these documents in place. And it can be a really, really hard uh, reality to come to terms with that, you know, your days are numbered. And there may be only a couple more birthdays or a couple more Christmases that you're going to see. And so that can be a really, really scary reality for people. You know, they're, they're experiencing a lot of fear and a loss of what their future was going to be like. And also, too, they want to call on the social worker because the doctors may not be equipped to have these conversations either. 
So we really didn't get too much education on it in grad school. Doctors, surprisingly, don't have a whole lot of education on end-of-life planning because they're focused on rehabilitation, on getting people better. And so um, a lot of times these conversations are just not had um, and the doctors aren't taught that either. Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to this ad from our sponsor. And honestly, it's no wonder social workers are often called on by the medical team to have these conversations with the patients and the families because we are perfectly equipped to have these types of in-depth conversations about emotions, priorities, reality, all the different systems that come at play when making these really, really big decisions. We often are, whether we like it or not, the bridge of understanding between the patient and the family and the medical team. A lot of times a medical team is very busy and they have to focus on the medical side of their job. They don't have time to sift through the family dynamics and the understandings and do the the therapeutic interventions that we often do, such as, you know, reflecting what we're hearing and validating their concerns and their emotions. We have so much experience in helping people process this because it, they're starting the grief, they could be starting the grief process. They could be having a fear response, a fear reaction. And so knowing how to minimize those how to do conflict resolution, because there definitely is conflict with these types of conversations. Um, It really, really goes a long way and just helping the patient really understand and be able to voice what it is that they want and don't want. A lot of times they'll say, oh, you know, whatever my family wants, but really, it's what they want. It's, it's really their body, their decisions. They're the ones going to have to experience that. And so reiterating that and making sure that they understand, they do have the ability to put their own wishes in writing. And then you as a social worker are going to be advocating for those decisions to be honored. Because a lot of times the family may not be accepting of the decisions that that their loved one has put down. So that is the other reason. Um, another reason is we're good at sniffing out possible abusers, possible elder abuse. Um, there could be uh, different monetary gains by having people put different things on these on these documents. So it is important to also be able to sniff out, like, is someone trying to take advantage of them? Is is a family member or a friend or somebody trying to pressure them into making these decisions, into having them put their name on these types of documents? So we're really good at sniffing out those possible cases for, for abuse. So just to break it down a little bit more, what I'm, you know, exactly all the different things that I'm talking about. So End-of-life planning is going to be things like wills and trusts, advanced directives, power of attorney, 
So just so we're clear, and this is really going more into, you know, details about what everything's, what everything is, wills and trusts overall, they let you name the person that you want your money and your property to go to after you die. An advanced directive is what's going to let you make arrangements for your care if you become too sick. So the wills and trusts a lot of times are going to be managing the money and the property. So people will tell me all the time, oh, I have my trust. That's great. It is good to have someone help you manage your money um, in case you become too sick to do so or in case you pass away. However, what if you are sick? You're still alive. So the will and trust don't go into effect until you actually pass away. What about when you're sick or if you have dementia and you're not able to make these types of decisions? You're not able to think clearly. Maybe you have a lot of medications or um, cirrhosis, which impacts your ability to, to think clearly. You're confused. So you're not gone. You're still here. What do we do in the meantime? We still have to coordinate care. Um, we still have to know what it is that you want. And once you have reached the point of confusion or, you know, you're in a coma or you can't effectively communicate like a, a, a stroke, oh my gosh, it's too late because the advanced directives and the wills and trusts, they need to be written when you're able to effectively communicate when you're alert and oriented to who you are, where you are, what it is that you're doing, um, and you fully understand what the document is that you're creating. So if somebody calls on me to do an advanced directive because the daughter wants one for her parent who has dementia or the son, right? It doesn't matter. The, the adult child wants one for their parent who has dementia it's too late. It's too late to do an advanced directive if they have advanced dementia. So it's important that we're able to have these conversations early on. So, so the wills and trusts are about your money and your property, and that's going to be separate from what we are actually having a conversation about. So we're going to be having a conversation about your, your health care directive, and this can be called different things. It could be a, called a living will. It might be the person who you name could be called your, your power of attorney, durable power of attorney, your healthcare agent, your healthcare proxy. So there's all these different words that this person can be called. It is recommended to really designate one person I know a lot of times people have to feel like they have to choose which child and that can be really, really hard for them to process because they feel like they're favoring one person over the other, but really it's going to be about who is it that they trust to do this. So it's, it's really an important decision that they have to make that they really have to process because that person needs to be able to emotionally execute the decisions that you would want. So that's kind of the main difference there between the wills and the trusts and then the general power of attorney. 
if this is something that you want to go more in depth on, I've done an entire training called the Pulse Basics for Medical Social Workers because I began to realize a lot of people are having these conversations and they have no clue about what's going on. And worse, you don't even get to have the conversation because your approach is it's, it's off, okay? <laughs> it's off. We already know that this is an awkward conversation and people are very emotional with this. They're already emotional being in a healthcare situation because chances are things are not going well or there's a high stress situation. So if you come in and really destroy that rapport or any rapport that you're having, it can really, really be hard to get that back and to have the conversation. So if you are interested in learning more about this, um, I, in the training, the Pulse Basics for Medical Social Workers, I talk about what is a Pulse, what is an advanced directive. A lot of times they are called slightly different things depending on your state. Like here in California, it's called the Pulse, P-O-L-S-T. In New York, it's called the Most, M-O-L-S-T. And States, they generally have different versions of this document, and some don't have them at all. So if you are familiar with this or if you're planning to be a medical social worker, definitely check out the course. I give you templates, documentation tips. I give you the ways that I am able to approach strangers, approach families about this conversation that is not awkward. It's genuine. It's authentic. There's a whole bunch of really, really great information in this course. The link is in the bio if you're interested. Um, if you have questions, connect with me on Instagram. I love to hear feedback from you as the listener. And I'm just here to help, here to serve. We are just getting started. If this episode was helpful for you, make sure to share it. Put it out on social media. Even write me a review in iTunes. I love it. I truly appreciate you being here. And until next week, take care. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes, tap the five stars, and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You'll have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.